0: Well, thank you for coming out on a Friday night here at Grace on Campus. We are in the midst of study through the book of Romans. Uh, If you are joining us for the very first time, or even I should say if you're here for the second or even the third time, thank you for coming and coming back and coming back again. Uh, We're hoping that you're enjoying your time here through the study of God's Word, uh, but also through the time of fellowship and getting to know what we call the body of Christ, and brothers and sisters in the Lord, people you can come alongside and walk your Christian walk with and grow with. And that's why we gather each week, and that's why we go to church together on Sunday, is to glorify our Lord Jesus Christ together. Well, tonight we're going to continue our study in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 11. And as you're turning there, I want to tell you about Albert Einstein, Albert Einstein. He was a German-born theoretical physicist who developed the theory of relativity, one of the two pillars of modern physics. Any physics majors out there? Oh, wow, okay, maybe one out there. So this is all new to you as well, so no one can correct my facts here one of the two pillars of modern physics, alongside quantum mechanics. His work is also known for its influence on the philosophy of science. He is best known to the general public for his mass-energy equivalence formula, E equals mc squared, which has been dubbed the world's most famous equation. He received the 1921 Nobel Prize in physics for his services to theoretical physics, and especially for his discovery of the law, of the photoelectric effect, a pivotal step in the development of quantum theory. That's all wikipedia.com. Now, let me talk on a level that maybe you can understand, that I can understand. Well, one of Einstein's uh, other related areas of study produced the idea of what is known as the black hole, regions of space where gravitational attraction is extremely Strong. Whereas anything that comes into this sphere of the black hole will by gravitational force be sucked in to the hole without mercy, mass, or light. But because of these event horizons, which is what they're called, if, if you pass this event horizon, these boundaries around the black hole and get sucked in. Because of these event horizons, black holes were only theoretical. Einstein developed the idea in 1907 to 1917, so it's been around for about 100 years or so, but it's never been proven. Well, not until now. The scientists were able to identify where they believed to be a black hole, approximately 55 million light years away. And scientists and photographers got together and they timed it just so perfectly where they had a light source, some stars, some other sources of light behind the black hole right at a perfect time between the camera and the light source was the black hole. Now remember, light gets sucked in. So the light had to be bright enough to go around this, uh, event, these event horizons, be on the boundary so that it could silhouette kind of like a solar eclipse, the black hole. Well, they were able to take that picture just this week. And so now there is proof of Einstein theory of 100 years ago that there are black holes. So says the science in the news this week. Interesting. Well, Albert Einstein's genius mind is again on display, literally for the world to see through photograph. His theory was, as science is saying, right, even though we couldn't prove for 100 years his theory. They are still so mysterious, even to this day, even with just a photograph, still mysterious, still unknown, something still very intangible to us today, hard to describe, and yet today we have some evidence that the theory is true. Well, friends, today's text, and actually much of the rest of the chapter 8 that we're going to look into, looks at something which may often seem just as mysterious to people today. It's a topic that is often not known too well or discussed too often. It's something that is often in our minds intangible and sometimes hard to describe conceptually. What is our text about today? It's about the Holy Spirit. Xi Hong alluded to in the scripture reading, as alluded to in the prayer. Specifically, the text today will tell you how you can know if you are walking in the Spirit. And just as we now have proof, evidence that black holes exist, well, you don't have to guess any longer about the Holy Spirit in you. This text is going to give you evidence, some proof, for knowing if you are indeed walking in the Spirit. Romans chapter 6, quick rewind. We were dead to sin. It explained we were dead to sin, and we were once slaves to sin, and now we are slaves to righteousness. Romans chapter 7, we were dead to the law. But there's still a struggle between our our flesh and our flesh and our new spirit that dwells within us. Paul explains that in Romans chapter 7. Last week we looked at Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 4 and learned about three marks of those no longer condemned. Hopefully you're in Romans chapter 8 now. We're going to read those first four verses and then we'll continue on into our text today. Romans 8 chapter 1. Uh, Romans chapter 8 verse 1. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In these verses, Matt explained to us through the Word of God that we are no longer condemned, but we are united with Christ, that we are one with Christ, that we are united through his death burial, and resurrection, and that as believers in him, we no longer are condemned at all, but instead we are clothed with his righteousness. We are set free from sin was his point too, that Christ as a human and as a man died for our sin, and because of his death, we are now set free from that curse of sin. We know that as believers, we can still struggle, as we already talked about, but ultimately, we are set free from the penalty of sin, from the curse of sin. And then his third point, marks of those, of someone who is no longer condemned, is that we walk by the Spirit. The Christian who is no longer condemned lives a life not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. No longer does he live a life of sinfulness, but because of the Spirit, alive a life of righteousness, a life that is pleasing to God. So, perhaps you're sitting here today and wondering, well, how do I know if the Spirit is within me? How do I know if I am walking, as verse 4 says, according to the Spirit? Okay, it explained what I need to know, but about it, but how do I know if I personally, how how do you know if you are personally walking with the Spirit, in the Spirit? Or perhaps you're sitting here saying today, yes, I understand the gospel, and I understand that being condemned no longer means that I am united, now united with Christ, and that I am set free from sin. But still, how do I know if I'm walking with the Spirit? Is it merely enough to just know about it? That's why we have this text here today. This is why Paul continues on in verses 5 through 11 to explain what it means to have life in the Spirit. And so that's the question I pose to you, and that's the question we're going to answer today, and that's the main heading that we have. What does it mean to have life in the Spirit? And inevitably, once we know that, it's going to be very clear whether or not you are walking in the Spirit. See, in verses 5 through 11, Paul presents two options. Two options. Not just two options for the Christian. Not, not two options for those who are sitting here today. Not just two options for people here at Grace Church or in Los Angeles, but two options for everybody, for all time, two options. You are either walking in the Spirit or you are walking in the flesh. You are either walking in the Spirit or you are either not walking in the Spirit. Paul sets two options here in this text and he contrasts them with each other many, many times in different ways. The flesh versus the Spirit. Those who do not belong to Christ and those who do. Non-Christians and Christians. What does it mean to have life in the Spirit? Let's look. But in order to, before we look at exactly what it means to, to have life in the Spirit, let's first look at what it means to not have life in the Spirit. What is the negative example set before us? So, what does it mean to not live in the Spirit? It is to live, here's, <clears throat> here it is, it's up front, it is to live in the flesh. To live in the flesh. Verse 5, for those who live... According to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. And let me clarify the direction of thought here. This is saying that those who live or who are according to the flesh produce a mindset. They produce a mindset on the things of the flesh. It's not saying that if you set your mind on the things of the flesh, then you're are according to the flesh. You see what comes first? If you are according to the flesh, the result is, uh, the evidence is, you're going to naturally produce a mindset that is set on the flesh. It's indicative. The thinking on the flesh is indicative of the heart. Setting your mind on the things of the flesh is the result. It is It is it. Inevitable if you are according to the flesh. So the key is this. Key here is this. If you are setting your mind on the things of the flesh, that is telling, it is confirming that you are living according to the flesh. Okay. But it's still not very descriptive. So let's go a little bit deeper. What does it mean to set your mind on the things of the flesh? And really, this is where things get clear. This is how we know if we're walking in the Spirit. What does it mean to set your mind on on the things of the flesh? First, to set one's mind on things of the flesh. What does that mean? Let's look at that. For example, a year and a half ago, I was married almost a year and a half ago, October of 2017, to my wife, Chan. And I know there's a couple others in the room that are getting ready for their wedding day. And as you're planning for your wedding day, you are constantly thinking about that big day and the things that are to come. You're thinking about all the small details, thinking about all of the the invitations that are going out. You're thinking about all the details of the decoration, the food, and and everything that needs to get done leading up to that wedding day. Great. That is one mindset. You're constantly thinking about that. Well, that is what Paul is somewhat talking about here because it's not just an intellectual thing that Paul is talking about. It's not just constantly thinking about it. It's not just thinking the intellectual, conscience or having that conscience, that mindset, but it is a general direction of your life. What does it mean to set your mind on the things of the flesh? Well, to set your mind really means is to have a general direction of your life your will. You have a preference towards this lifestyle. You you have a desire towards this lifestyle. You you give careful attention and detail and consideration towards this lifestyle. It's not just merely planning and thinking for, for a short period of time, but it is your general bent, the way of your life. When you think about your life and the decisions that you're making here on this campus, are they bent towards the things of this world? And we're going to dive into the word flesh here in a little bit, but are they bent more towards the things of the Lord? How do you see your life? So let's look at that word flesh then, because I think that's going to help. A general bent, a general direction, a preference toward, an inclination toward flesh. things of the flesh. And we know the flesh here is not talking about the meat on our bones, okay? Although flesh means that. That's not what Paul's referring to here. It's not talking about physical bodies, although flesh means that. It doesn't mean the physical world that we live in, although sometimes it means that as well. But here in this passage, we see Uh, this negative tone, because we're contrasting it with life in the spirit that we'll see, and walking in the spirit. Here in this passage, there's this negative tone about the flesh, and so we think it could, could mean sensuality and immorality, but Paul uses flesh even in a broader sense than just sexual immorality, I think Galatians 5.19 really helps with this. And so if you listen to Galatians 5.19, listen to, to Paul's description of the flesh. He says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evidence, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing. And if that wasn't enough, he says, and things like these. To summarize then, it's, it's anything of, of sinful nature. Things of the flesh or anything that go against God. God. In a one-word way of describing it, it's, it's sin. It's setting our minds, having a general bent in life. What this whole, whole phrase is saying, this verse is saying, general bent in life towards sin. What is sin? It's anything against the Lord, against God and what he's commanded us to do. It's anything that he has, it's any time we go against what God has commanded us to do. It's going against any, anything that God has told us we should do and we don't do it. It's, it's any time we, we live our life for our, ourself instead of turning it towards the glory of God. It's when we pursue the things of this world and our careers and our relationships and, and, and the possessions more than we love our God. Now, we, it's nothing wrong to have those things. In fact, those things can be very, very good, and they can be glorifying to the Lord. But it's when we love those things, and, and we strive after those things, and we have a desire for those things, and we covet those things more than we do God. So setting one's mind on the flesh is to have a general direction, a bent, a tor- an inclination towards these things. A will generally preferring sin. I think of Matthew sixteen twenty three, And Jesus says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests. But man, he calls him Satan. And Paul's talking about non-believers. He says in Philippians 3.19, For many walk, of whom I've often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame who set their minds on the earthly things. In explaining this verse, one author writes Those who live according to the flesh allow their lives to be basically determined by their sinful human nature. They set their minds on, are most deeply interested in, constantly talking about, engage in glory in the things pertaining to the flesh. That is, to sinful human nature. Anything where God is absent. Anything not done in reliance of God. Anything that is sin. So then we must ask the question, what is the reality then of setting our mind on the flesh? What is the reality? What goes along with setting our mind on the flesh? What are the things that go with it and look at verse 6. It says, Paul says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death. And notice here, he doesn't say to set the mind, again, the order comes, it's very important. He doesn't say that to set the mind on the flesh results in death. It doesn't say to set the mind on the flesh, will one day when you pass away will lead to death. He says it is death, it is death today, that if you're still in the flesh and you're sending your mind on the flesh, you're already in death. Death is already a reality for you. Death, Death is a state you're already in. It's the reality of your life now. As our pastor says, The apostle is stating a spiritual equation, not a spiritual consequence here. The consequence involved in this relationship is the reverse. That is, because unredeemed men are already spiritually dead, their minds are inevitably set on the flesh. There are eternal consequences as well. Not only do we live in death today, but there are eternal consequences as well. Anyone who remains in this unsaved state will not only have death that rules over him in this life, but will also experience eternal death in the life to come. The mindset of flesh-dominated people alienate them from God and renders them fel- their fellowship with him impossible in either this world or the next. Galatians 5.19 says the deeds, in the second part, says the deeds of the flesh, we talked about those, And he concludes that verse saying, Just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's a reality of death in this life, but there is an even greater reality that you will experience eternal death without God in hell. What is the reality of setting your mind on the flesh? Well, secondly, it is that you're hostile to God. God. You're hostile to God. Verse 7, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. (coughs) Indeed, it cannot. You're not just an enemy, but rather you are someone who is fierce at enmity against the Lord an entire mindset directed against the things of God. In my previous job, I I used to work for um, the Air Force and the military, and it was really interesting because we would go on a regular basis to these briefings, and they would tell us about certain threats that we were facing. And these were threats against our computer systems, our, our physical boundaries, um, at, at our, our military base, and so they would brief us on kind of the latest threats and things we needed to be aware about. And the reality is, the United States is a targeted nation. And we would hear, we go into the IT department, and they say they would be getting thousands and thousands of pings, hackers from all, all over the world, trying to break into the systems to steal the information, to know what the United States' next moves were going to be, to to figure out what we were developing and planning. The reality is, much of the world is very, very hostile to the government, to the United States. The U.S. is a scary, scary entity to go against. And I would tell you, from working for, the, for our military, you do not want to go up the United, against the United States. But let me tell you, even scarier than the United States is the living God. The living God that created this world, that created you and me, that in a moment and with one very breath could take out all of us. But because of his mercy and his love, despite our sinfulness and our disobedience against him, he has provided a way through his son, Jesus Christ. For anybody who comes to him today can receive that forgiveness from him. But the Bible also warns us that that day is coming when forgiveness and when that grace will run out. And he will come and he will pour out his wrath against all the evil of this world. Friends, you do not want to be the one going against the almighty God. You do not want to be hostile to the almighty God, to be at enmity, to be at war with him. But that's what this is saying here. To be in the flesh, the mind that is set on the flesh, it's hostile to this living God. James chapter 4, verse 4 says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy. An enemy of God. What's another reality of setting your mind on the flesh? Third, it is not to submit to God's law. The reality is that you're not submitting to God's law. This is also here in verse 7. It is to go against God's law. It is the very definition of sin. It is to go against everything that God has commanded. To do the things he has told us not to do. And to not do the things that he has told us to do. And to not worship him when he has commanded us to worship him. And to give our whole life to him. And to know it and to understand it. To feel the conviction of obeying it and yet to disobey. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Going back to several months ago, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. They know God. There is good written on their hearts, and yet they disobey. And not only do they disobey, but later in Romans chapter 1, they give heartily, heartily, They approve heartily the sinful nature and behavior. Every person knows God's law and is held accountable to it. All peoples are without excuse, but the reality is that those who are according to the flesh will not submit to it. The bottom line to all of this, friends, the person in the flesh cannot please God. He cannot because he doesn't belong to him. And as we will soon see, because the Spirit does not indwell within him. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And look at the second half of verse 9. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Without faith, without trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, without confessing your sin and recognizing your need for a Savior, it is impossible to please him hebrews eleven six. this person would want nothing to do with god although speaking in the context of prof- false prophets i think matthew chapter 7 verses 17 through 20 the example of the tree and the fruits explains it well the good tree produces good fruit the bad tree produces bad fruit The good tree produces good fruit, and the bad tree cannot produce good fruit. So what? You will then know them by their fruits. Friends, hostility, enmity, not being able to submit to God, and not belonging to him, these are all going to be fruits that are evidence of the bad tree. And I would hope today I would urge you today, and I would pray that if this characterizes you today, then you would embrace this next part of this passage. That you would turn to God's Word. That you would ask somebody here today, what does it mean? Can you show me more about what it means to be a believer? And that is, friends, as simply as it can be, is to turn from your sins today to the Lord Jesus Christ and ask for forgiveness and he will forgive you of your sins, that you would turn your life over to him today and call him Lord. None is righteous otherwise. William Wilberforce, a strong Christian, had tried to unsuccessfully invite his friend William Pitt the Younger the Prime Minister of England, to go with him to hear a great British preacher, Richard Cecil. And after asking him many, many times, finally, Richard Pitt the Younger went with William Wilberforce. And they sat under this amazing preacher, one of the most powerful preachers of that time, and said, surely, surely, if he just sits under This man's teaching for one sermon, surely he will be converted. Well, finally agreeing to go with Wilberforce, Pitt attended Cecil's preaching service, where the two sat under a powerful and wonderful presentation of the truths of God. Wilberforce was sure, absolutely sure, that this would be the day of salvation. But as they left the service, Pitt turned to Wilberforce and said, You know, Wilberforce, I have not the slightest idea what that man was talking about. One commentator says, in commentating on this story concludes by saying, Clearly, Pitt was as deaf to God as if if he were physically a dead man. Friends, without the Spirit, without being a believer, without Jesus Christ being your Lord, a lot of these things are going to be dead to you as if you are a dead man. But that can change. But that can change. So let's come back to our original question and tie this all together now. How do I know if I am walking in the Spirit and not according to the flesh? We looked at what it doesn't mean. doesn't mean. What does it mean to not live in the Spirit? It is to live in the flesh, meaning those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the flesh, which is death, is to be hostile to God, is not to submit to God. And ultimately, you cannot please God, and this is all indicative that the Spirit is not in you. So now, looks, now let's look at what it does mean. What does it mean to have life in the Spirit? Verse 9, here we go. Buckle up. You, however, are not in the flesh, but you are in the the Spirit. The implication here is that there exists a dichotomy, and he, after explaining about the flesh and the life in the flesh, Paul turns in verse 9 and says, but you, you Christian, that does not describe you. The implication here is that you are a believer, but the implication is also that you can't be of both. It's, remember going back to the very beginning, there's one of two options. You are either in the flesh or you are in the Spirit. You cannot be of both. You must be one of the other. Romans chapter 6. Listen to these contrasts. You're either slaves to sin or you're slaves to righteousness. Matthew six twenty four says, no one can serve two masters either, for he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And throughout the Bible, It presents two options, and we continue with those two options here. Let me describe what it means to have life in the Spirit. How do you know if you are walking in the Spirit? We're going to go back through some of the verses, so bear with me. Go back to the second half of verse 5, and Paul contrasts now. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. You set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Let's look at that. We already looked at what it means to set your mind, is to have that bent, that general direction towards the things of the flesh. But now we're going to have our life that is generally bent towards and the general direction and the desire for, and you consider heavily and, and you love the things of the Spirit. Life in the flesh is anything against God, but life in the Spirit is anything that includes God, is aimed for and toward the worship of God as we previously saw that to set one's mind on the flesh is death but now you look and it says to set one's mind on the things of the spirit is life and peace life and peace remember that we talked about how the person who sets their mind in the flesh is death in today's life well the same way Paul says that setting your mind on the things Of the Spirit is life and peace. Mindset in the Spirit reveals the reality of life and peace in the Christian's life. What kind of life? Life that is filled with love, as we heard last week. One that has purpose in serving the living God, in worshiping Jesus Christ. One that aims to tell others about Jesus Christ and the good news of salvation. What kind of peace do you experience as one who is in the Spirit? Well, you experience a peace between you and God. You're no longer at war with God, but you experience peace with God. You've experienced His forgiveness and His grace and His mercy and his love. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 15.13 says, And now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, you get to experience life to its fullest according to To the way God has designed us to live. We get to enjoy peace with the Almighty God, the creator of this universe. We're no longer at war with Him. We experience peace with fellow believers, with our neighbors, and even our enemies to a degree. There's a peace in the believer knowing that the things of this world are just temporal, knowing that pain and disease and the loss of loved ones is only but a moment here in this world. For an eternity rests, uh, our hope rests, when we will be with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, when there will be no more pain and there will be no more loss where we will worship him, the Lord Jesus Christ, forever and ever. The Christian experiences true life and true peace. What does it mean to have life in the Spirit? Well, we set our minds on the things of the Spirit, but we also know that the Spirit dwells in in you. The Spirit dwells in you. Going back to verse 9, it says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him, as we already saw. What does it mean that the Spirit dwells in you? Go to Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. It's pretty clear here. Listen to what it said God's saying, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put in my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. By having the very spirit of God in us, it means that there's been a transformation in our life. It means that there's been major surgery done in our lives. That God has eradicated our former heart and our former nature of sin. And he has given us a heart of flesh. And he has given us life. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? And the Spirit now dwells in you, and the Spirit is working in you. The believer is now under not the dominance of the evil one or of sin, but he is filled and controlled by the Spirit. Romans 5 again, in talking about the tribulations and hope, Paul says that hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. What does this mean for the believer? Spirit controls you and governs you, verse 9, and now you belong to Christ. You're now a child of, of the living God you've been adopted into his family the spirit gives you life verses 10 through 11 the last point we want to make about this the spirit dwells within you and now the spirit gives you life as well verse 10 but if Christ is in you although the body is dead because of sin the spirit is life because of righteousness If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give you life, will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I know a lot of this is repetitive, but if the spirit dwells in you and the spirit is life, then life dwells in you. Back to Ezekiel 37, verses 5 through 6. Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord think back to Genesis chapter 1 what did God do with 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 Adam he created him out of the world and you breathe life into him. And that's what he's doing for all of us all over again because man sinned. He's now breathing a new life into each one of us. And the spirit of life dwells in everybody who believes. What does this mean? For those who have the spirit, means that the Spirit washes us of our sins. He washes us of our sins, and He renews us. He renews our minds. He sanctifies us. He grows us each and every day to be more like Christ. He helps us in our times of struggle. When we are prone to sin... The Spirit helps us. He reminds us of the love of Christ and what what he has done on the cross for us. He intercedes on our behalf. When we don't know what to pray, when we don't know how to live, he prays for us, to the Father. He illumines the scriptures to us. When we open the word of God, These can just be words on the page. And so many times do we just read the pages on on our Bible and have no idea what it's saying. But when we pray to God, we ask him for illumination. We ask him for understanding. And the Spirit is the one who helps us to understand God's Word, to learn about God. He empowers us and he directs our will. The Spirit is not just a spirit but the spirit is a person and he has a personality and he understands our weaknesses and he has feelings and emotions just like us and so the spirit comes into us wanting us to grow into the likeness of christ understanding us and pointing us to him The Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in us. And that's what it's, going back to the verse here, verse 11, I think it's one final truth that we need to understand about the Spirit dwelling in us. And that's that it's the very same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. The same Spirit that was there with Jesus Christ on the cross, And in his resurrection, who brought him back from the dead, who helped him through that time on the cross, that same spirit now dwells not just in this place, but in our very hearts. And it's that same God who wants to bring, same spirit, who wants to bring glory to our living God. So often we want to do things our way, So often we want to live in the flesh, but friends, if we have the Spirit, we can live according to God's Word. The hallmark of the believer is that the Spirit indwells with him. Two ways, two considerations. We're either walking in the flesh or walking in the Spirit. Maybe you're here today, and you stumbled across, c- across Broad 2160E, or a friend brought you out, and maybe this is all new to you. And I say, I'm so glad that you're here tonight. And as we were talking about these two, I hope you were considering which one you were a part of. Because we just explained the evidence of the proof or or the characteristics of someone who is living according to the flesh and one who is living according to the spirit and we've given exactly what the word of God says and it's very easy for us to know which camp we would fit in what is our general bent what do we set our minds on are we hostile to God or are we are we at peace with him and so my prayer tonight, and I think the prayer for everybody here, is that you would come and have the Spirit indwell within you. Last week I was helping Channing's brother move. Um, they moved from Torrance area to, to Big Bear. And um, one thing that I always try to have with me when, I, when I'm helping people move are Gloves. Gloves. Um, you never know what you're going to be moving. You're carrying cardboard boxes and things that are sharp and um, just all kinds of things. Things get dropped into, into a pile of, of weeds and grass, and you pick it up, you can get scratched easily. Things are heavy. Sometimes, sometimes you need a little bit extra grip. And so we bring gloves. And gloves are extremely useful. They're extremely helpful. They're extremely practical. And when you think about gloves, there's What? Gloves for moving, gloves for planting. Uh, you have gloves for baseball. Um, and there's many purposes for gloves, um, even for food, for cleaning the bathroom. But the glove can do only that which it is supposed to do. But the glove cannot do anything by itself. Only when there's a hand inside can the glove actually function and do what it's supposed to do. And as cheesy as maybe that example is, I hope it's helpful because we are a tool made for God's glory. We are His hands and His feet. We are those who go out and proclaim His truth to this campus and to this world. But unless the Spirit indwells within you, Unless there's that hand in the glove, that tool is useless. And friends, you are useless for the kingdom of God unless the Spirit dwells within you. Would I pray today that you would invite the Spirit to come and be a part of your life? That is our prayer. Let's pray.